Welcome back to the live drop. I'm your host, Mark Valley, and here's your Mad Minute from my guest, Jonathan Dyer. Uh, what you're just listening to is what I imagine Jonathan was listening to as he spent three years during the Cold War living and working in Berlin as a Russian linguist for the Army's Intelligence and Security Command at Field Station Berlin, or on the hill, as they call it. Um, his experiences in Berlin serve as a background for his Cold War thrillers. The Nick Temple Files, four published to date, Switchback, Correctly, and Gambit, Flemish Coil, Shadow Chamber, um, and also The Holy Lance is another thriller of his. He's written a bunch of other stuff. Um, we talk about his experiences working as an intercept operator on the hill in Teufelsburg in Berlin in the mid-80s, life in the occupied city. But mostly we talk about his writing and his espionage novels, and he shares with me some uh, writing advice. Begin transmission. Oh, and you can find his work at JonathanDyerAuthor.com. There'll be more in the show notes. Begin transmission now. I went in 1975 with my father. He pulled me out of school for a couple of weeks, and we uh, toured around Europe. And part of that included three days in Berlin. And my impression right away was the same impression that a lot of people had. East Berlin was black and white, and West Berlin was in living color. We even spent an evening at a, a restaurant in East Berlin. It was pretty drab. It was unremarkable. It was, was a little bit intimidating. Um, and, but we got to talk to some East Germans and they thought East Berlin was just the way the one guy talked about it, the Hauptstadt, the, the jewel of East Germany. So that was a very interesting experience as a 17 uh, year old. And when I decided to join the army um, in 1981, one of my goals was to get back to Berlin because of that experience. And getting back to Berlin, 81, it, it had changed a little bit. It was um, West Berlin had even more of a modern aspect to it. Um, but the, that same impression of the East as being, well, a totalitarian state, clearly a totalitarian state, and the West being very lively, vibrant, um, but still a little bit dangerous being where it was. A, a scary moment. I, as I was in East Berlin, I was always checking to make sure I had my passport. And I, I, went to the, I went to the men's room and I came back and did the field check for the passport and I didn't have it. So in dashing back to the men's room and there was my American passport sitting on the floor of the men's room. Yeah, I thought, well, if somebody had gotten there in the meantime, I, I would have had a hard time getting back on the other side of the wall that evening. And the, the person that was talking up East Germany, did you have any suspicions about him or was it just your... Yeah, he seemed like he was to be believed. He and his wife were on their honeymoon. And so they were a young couple. Um, they they seemed, they were interacting like a couple that it was on a honeymoon. They weren't didn't act like they were... Uh, uh, undercover or anything like that. So they were, and they didn't seem to have any hesitancy about talking to us as Americans, and uh, which kind of surprised me. So um, it was altogether it was an, an interesting evening. And was your father involved in the service at all overseas? What was his What was his background? No, he was uh, a pilot for United Airlines, so that made it easy for us to travel and cheap for us to travel. He he had been in the National Guard as a young man in Missouri during the Korean War, but uh, he. Uh, studied German and French in college and uh, always encouraged me to study foreign languages. So I studied German in high school, and this was kind of a, a, a reward for having done that. So then you went back in 1981, and this was working for the field station Berlin at that point? 
Right. I, in uh, 81, joined the Army and, and trained for almost two years, uh, first at the Defense Language Institute. I took uh, the basic Russian course there for a year, and then uh, I did well, so they let me go ahead and take the intermediate course right on top of that, and then went to uh, Goodfellow Air Force Base for some technical radio training, and then to the National Security Agency. Then uh, by August 83, uh, I went over to Berlin uh, for duty at field station. And can you describe your work there? Uh, you know, generically, um, sure. I think a lot of it's still uh, classified, but uh, I was a radio intercept operator um, on a, as a general matter. Um, we were monitoring the Soviet Union, Soviet Army, the group of Soviet forces, Germany. I think the acronym is GSOPG. And um, so uh, doing both intercept and then uh, also working in the transcription bay and doing both of those jobs, pretty Pretty typical for a Russian linguist at field station. But were you constantly listening to recorded transmissions or were they live transmissions that you were translating in real time? The transcribers, as a transcriber, you listen to the recorded transmission. Uh, that went down to them once they've been recorded. As an intercept operator, we had uh, a couple of different ways to record things. Um, one was just manually hit the button on the tapes and set it going, but there were also uh, these uh, automatic units that would start recordings if, if it was set to a certain sensitivity. So uh, a lot of the time as an intercept operator, just moving up and down the spectrum, looking for communications, depending upon what the briefing was when you come onto, onto the shift, who was doing what, where, you know, how many degrees north, south, east, or west of Berlin, and sometimes just out there searching for it. Do you know, not, not James Hall, but do you know Tim Hall by any chance? Tim was a Morse code up. He was in the Morse code section. That name's not familiar to me. I'm much better with faces than names, but I, I definitely knew some guys who were, I think I told you, we call them Diddy Boppers. Uh, oh, that's right. We well, talked about the Diddy Boppers. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Morse code guys. We, we thought they were all crazy. I, and the, the Morse code was driving them crazy, but the, they were a fun bunch. Was there a certain yeah. type, the Morse code, as opposed to the, the intercept guys? Uh, yeah, they um, and each each type of group up there sort of had their own personality. We had uh, some guys that worked like the electronic signals, printers, those sorts of things. They all seemed to be from Alabama and Georgia, and they were kind of good old boys, uh, uh, had trained in Pensacola, Florida, kind of hung together. Uh, the, the Morse code guys seemed to be uh, a little more tightly wound and a little more, when they were not working, uh, uh, a little more ready to unwind. Right, and, uh, right. But, you know, the, Mark, the overall impression was that whatever people were doing on their own free time, people took the job pretty seriously right. and understood that it, it was an important job. And um, I was always impressed by the level of professionalism of, frankly, a bunch of guys that didn't have much more than high school diplomas and working pretty hard and, um, you know, spec fours and E5s and some PFCs even coming to work, um, taking the work seriously, doing a good job, and then going back to the barracks and having some fun. And what type of warnings would you get from maybe counterintelligence or from the 766? Because I know somebody described the some of the you know, the young spec fours or these young people from the South, or maybe they get in financial trouble or something. They described them as being sort of the low-hanging fruit, at least in the 80s, that um, some of the you know, Stasi and other people who were trying to get an operatives were trying to get information from. If there was somebody that was picking at the low-hanging fruit, as you suggest, uh, we would get a warning about him. I remember there was a, a guy in the French army who was being way too chummy with people in the uh, the bar that was right across the street in Andrews. And um, so uh, there was uh, warnings going on about him. Then it turned out he was just kind of a mooch. 
trying to get people to give him money. It wasn't really much more than that. Right. Um, and every now and then we get, again, fairly generic warnings and, and more reminders. As you indicated, when we first got there, we were briefed about multiple contacts with foreign nationals. If we had two or more, we had to report them to the S2. Every now and then we would get a reminder of that. But as far as uh, specific, this individual's doing that or watch out for this, uh, I don't recall a lot of that, honestly, Mark. The low-hanging fruit. I, <laughs> I was an engineer. I, we weren't even fruit at all. We weren't. We weren't even. Ed, we weren't even edible. So, you know, I don't, I don't, no, no offense. No offense or anything. Nobody, yeah, none taken. nobody really wanted to know how to um, fix the sewer system. <laughs> there weren't a lot of Stasi beating down our door. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the? Um, like, do you get to obviously the, the film um, "Lives of Others"? You know, the Stasi surveillance operative is listening in and he gets to know these people. Did you start to know who some of these voices were? Were, were there some of those repeat characters that were giving these radio transmissions? Uh, not really. You know, we were monitoring really large units. So, you know, you'd have uh, multiple uh, actors. You might, during the course of a day, hear the same guy come up again and again, like in a field training exercise. But as far as, oh, I've heard this guy before, uh, that was very unusual. Uh, one day I, I listened to a couple of guys who were friends back in the, the Soviet Union, and they were talking in the clear. Uh, they were breaking all the rules of radio transmission. They were and they were throwing out all kinds of names about who's coming, what are, what they're going to be doing the next week, and it was uh, you know major opsec violations. Um, but I listened to them for about an hour, and that was kind of fun. I got to know them in a little bit in that hour. Heavily accented Russian, so it was a real challenge for me. Where were they from? You know, I don't remember. I, I want to say the Ukraine. But uh, I, I'm not entirely, you know, this was 1985, so, you know, memory fades. But uh, they were definitely from the same town, friends back there, and uh, they were both stationed in East Germany at the time. We had equipment that I could identify where they were. But as far as individuals coming up again, uh, I didn't experience much of that. Certainly units coming up again, the same units being active again, and sometimes as high as like a brigade field training exercise, um, all the way down to the company level, artillery units, those sorts of things. So a lot of people, a lot of younger listeners, they're not really familiar with kind of the excitement of the Cold War. And the, the moment where you're listening into these, it's not just the, it's not just the, you know, the, the, the illicit sort of thing of listening in on, on a stranger's conversation, but desc- describe for a minute what it was like listening to who we'd been told was the enemy since we were kids. Well, it was, it was a lot like guard duty is the way I always tell people. It was lots of boredom and punctuated by moments of sheer terror, just thinking, oh, my God, the balloon's going up. This is it. Right. That was exciting. And, and the, the feeling of uh, wanting to get it right and having, uh, as an, especially as an intercept operator, we, we're also taking hand copy, writing down what the Russians are saying right. and making, wanting to get it right and realizing I might have only one chance to get this right. When things were hopping, um, it was exciting. A lot of times, it was like I said, it was it was like guard duty, just fairly routine. Russians coming up, checking their own equipment. Uh, East Germans coming up, checking their equipment. Uh, but when we were on, it, it was fun, and it was it was there was a little different atmosphere in the uh, field station when there were big things going on, like uh, field training exercises. It just uh, everybody was very focused. Um, sharing a lot of information, learning a lot of stuff at the same time. You know, every now and then you forgot, well, you know, they could just put up a big sign that says Stalag 13, and that would be West Berlin. I remember the guys from 
At least the guys that work at ASA at Teufel's, Teufel's Birthday they always just had this strange look in their eyes. Because I mean, we would life could go on in, in West West Berlin. I mean, they had beautiful parks and lakes and all kinds of things to do and clubs. And it's, it's the biggest city as you as you would want. As you you know, you could spend a lot of time sort of discovering the place. So you could really forget about the fact that you know, aside from this whole wall thing. <laughs> you know, you can right. really forget, you can really forget for a time that, oh, wow, we're behind the Iron Curtain and so forth. But what was it like for you going to, you know, listening to Russians on an exercise, you know, talking about maneuvering or how they're going to, how they're going to, you know, move this entire motorized rifle regiment and then buying hamburgers in Truman Plaza? Yeah, it was, you know, it was a little bit existential at times, just uh, kind of wondering how much longer can this last? Um, is Is there... Uh, because as you know, uh, even though the starting in the late sixties, there was this sort of rapprochement with Willie Brandt leading the way. Right. By the early eighties, uh, things had ratcheted back up again. We were putting in the Pershing two missiles, um, with the Korean airliner had been shot down. And, uh, I know personally just every now and then wondering, um, how much longer am I going to be able to get a, a hamburger at Truman Plaza? And, uh, or is, is that going to be, uh, part of my life or if that will, I mean, I didn't obsess about it, and you couldn't obsess about it. You had a lot of fun, and like you said, a big city with a lot of great stuff to do. Uh, but every now and then, it was uh, brought into clear focus just by what we were doing uh, up on T-Bird, up on the hill. Yeah, you think about it. God, how long could that have lasted? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's going to blink, right? Who's going to blink? Were you on the – I know you might not be able to talk about this, but were you – I know they wrote about it a little bit in the show, Deutschland 83. Um but were you up there during or during Abel Archer? Were you listening in on anything that was going on at the time? Uh, in short, no. When you got to Berlin, um, the first thing you had to do goes through. Maybe you did this too. Go through the School of Standards, and uh, where they said, "Here's how to behave as a Berlin soldier," because it's such a an area of interest. They didn't want you messing up. They didn't want you uh, doing anything that would embarrass the United States. They used to say the best way to make E4 in Berlin is to come as an E5. Right, and, uh, right. So we did that first, and then um, it took a while for us to really get onto the job. So what they they had construction going on up at Teufelsburg at the time. So for about a month or so, all the new guys, and that was me included, had to guard the local Germans that were doing the construction and make sure they weren't bugging the place. And um, so uh, by the time I actually got on into, I, I first worked in subsystem Delta. By the first time I got on. Um, I'm pretty sure Abel Archer was already over. So were the Soviets also listening to our exercises? I mean, were they listening to our, our radio transmissions as well? I'm, I'm sure they were, Mark. I, they, uh, uh, they were listening to their own people. <laughs> they were listening to their everybody. And um, I, I didn't experience this, but I heard apocryphally that one Christmas, a couple of years before I got there, a Soviet operator uh, came up and wished – everybody at field station a Merry Christmas and then started going through the names, wishing them a Merry Christmas by name. So uh, yeah, they had some, some sort of contact and they absolutely had to be listening that if they weren't, that uh, they weren't much of an army. I've talked to some other people have mentioned that um, they questioned like the readiness of the Soviet army during the call, at least the, of the um, group of Soviet forces. What was your take on that? Do you think they were capable of launching an attack through the full the gap as everybody was afraid of, or were they just more or less an occupational force, kind of like the Berlin Brigade? I mean, there was a huge number. I mean, right. But um, nevertheless, what was your take on that? I thought uh, 
I thought they weren't ready. I thought they had large problems from my view and what I heard. I, I saw a lot of inefficiency. I saw, all right, I heard officers screaming at men that were just not capable of doing what, it, what the officer wanted them to do. My sense generally was that, uh, that if they decided to march through the folding gap to the English Channel, it certainly was going to take more than three days, the way the propaganda sort of was at the time. Right. And, that it, and it would be a pretty typical Soviet-slash-Russian operation of just throwing artillery and bodies and artillery and bodies and more artillery and more bodies until they accomplished their objective. It wasn't going to be some precise spearhead strike of elite forces. It was going to be same old, same old for the Soviet Union. This wasn't going to be those terrifying red arrows that were just slashing through Europe that we're always, always looking at. <laughs> I, that, that was my impression, Mark. Uh, you know, other people might have gotten a different impression, but I was not, from what I heard, I was not impressed operationally. All I can say, when I, I, came, I first got there was 1980, the beginning of 89, and I went through the, I wasn't an intelligence guy, so I just went through the checkpoints with all my stuff packed into my BMW 314. Uh -huh. 1978 powder blue oh what a car <laughs> anyway I, I remember going to the soviet checkpoint and you know i i think i said like dobre dobre dien or something to him just to be friendly and um yeah he was like That's I said, no 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 but he his suit didn't fit right his right. hair was really pretty long he almost like a civilian like and i noticed the only thing i noticed was he had dandruff on his uh, -huh. uh on his collar and i thought this doesn't look like the the ferocious Red Army I was ex I was expecting. Yeah, I, I would echo that. that. I remember when we went over and saw, um, as part of that School of Standards, we did a, a tour of East Berlin. We all had to wear uniforms. And, um, oh, this is a great Army story. You'll, you'll appreciate this. Oh, the, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you had the uh, muted crests on your shoulders of the dress greens. And the INSCOM, Intelligence and Security Command crests, were very distinctive. Uh, so we had to take ours off. But we were the only ones that didn't have unit crests on. Everybody else had theirs so they could tell who the intelligence guys were. You probably still had like the ripped little stitches all, all the way around. In the yeah, it was just ridiculous. So uh, anyway, when we were over there, one of the places that we visited was the Noya Vaca, which is the soldier's tomb. And they had a, always had a couple of soldiers out in front standing guard. And one of the things that they told us you're going to see is these guys would – try to remain perfectly still, but they were going to stare at our shoes because they just couldn't get their shoes to spit shine the way we could. They never could, could they? They were all Yeah, and, you know, that's a pretty simple thing. And so that, that said to me um, uh, that their, their equipment's not good, maybe their training's not good, and maybe I'm extrapolating too much here, but it was just a moment, kind of like your moment with the at the checkpoint, that um, uh, maybe these guys aren't the uh, highly trained robots that everybody thinks they are. Yeah, so not the even Drago from the Rocky movies. Yeah, right. they, yeah, yeah. The spit shining—they they did have a brush, general brush shine about them. Yeah, that and those were East Germans that were in front of the Neue Vaca. But you know, they were all part of the same group, and these were guys that were, I would assume, were fairly elite because they had a very public presence there at the Neue Vaca. Maybe I'm making too much of that, but that was certainly my impression. I want to talk about your writing as well and your, your character, uh, the Nick Temple's, the Nick Temple series, the one where he was in the Commandantura, yeah. right? And yeah. um. Actually, I've been trying to get a hold of the curator of that museum because I want to talk to him. I, apparently, that takes 
it's located in the same place as where the museum used to be. I think, mm -hmm. had you ever been there before? No. Have you ever seen that? No, I've just seen pictures of it. I've, I've never been there, no. Let's jump a little bit ahead to, um, when did you first start writing uh, write, writing fiction? I was actually in Berlin. I created this Nick Temple character while I was in Berlin. And um, during slow moments uh, on the hill, and there were plenty of them because, you know, we worked mids sometimes. And um, the local area network had this these individual pages for each position. And so I would fill up my page with a paragraph of Nick Temple. And uh, so I started, I started getting a few people. I would, I'd be at the chow hall and I'd be talking about this. And some guy would come up to me and say, Hey, you're Nick Temple. Right. <laughs> I said, well, I'm, I'm not Nick Temple, but I invented him. And, yeah. uh, so that's really where it started. And, and I printed some of those off. I, I still have copies of those things that I printed off at Teufelsburg. And, um, Oh, so really? it's just a nice little uh, archive. Do you have any of those? Do you have any? Could you send me one? I could put her put her uh, on a link or something. I can. You know, they they were done on an old dot matrix printer. They're they're pretty. Uh, I'll try to copy them and uh, yeah. and and scan them and send them to you. But uh, anyway, they're very old school, and it, it was a lot of fun. I, as I said, I, in slow moments, I created this guy, and and part of that was I had read a lot of Robert Ludlum, John Le Carre. Frederick Forsyth, Ian Fleming, and I, I really liked that writing. And at first, it was kind of a parody. Then um, a little later, I was, uh, as a lawyer, I started doing some uh, writing some fiction, too. And uh, I took my took a shot at writing some screenplays. And Switchback was originally a screenplay, mm -hmm. uh, just to see if I could do it. And then um, I was writing some other things. And my wife said, why don't you write stuff that you like writing? Because <laughs> she thought right. all the stuff I was writing was way too ponderous, way too introspective. And I... Uh, so I turned Switchback into a novel, and it was a lot of fun. And yeah. just doing, and then kind of one thing led to another. I, uh, my wife and I uh, spent our honeymoon on Crete, and so the the second book I pretty much uh, set in Crete at the Heracland Gambit, and then the third one, Silent Vector. I just thought to myself, what if the Cuban Missile Crisis was a big Soviet head fake trying to get our attention there while they did something else? And then uh, this last one, the Flemish Coil. I heard that term about 30 years ago. My dad had a sailboat, and a Flemish coil is concentric circles of a line. You just stow it on the deck of a ship. You've seen that. And I heard that term, Flemish coil, and I thought to myself, that's a spy novel. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. I heard that. A little odd. The first thing that was written about that book was the title. That's often the last thing. But uh, I had this title, and I said, I got I to gotta write a book around that. Anyway, those are the four Nick Temple files. I can just see you sitting in this little sitting in this little room. Everyone lined up, listening to listening to things up up in uh, Teufelsburg. You know, everybody in uniform, everything looking completely new, dreaming of Nick Nick Temple. Oh yeah, hiding out from the from the Stasi or the KGB. But are you working on another Nick Temple? Yeah, I've got a another one that I've started sketching out. It's uh, my wife was down at uh, U.S. Army Russian Institute down in Garmisch for six months. She was TDY there from Berlin. So I went down to visit her. And uh, so that's that's going to be the next major setting for the next Nick Temple file. It's going to have something to do with um, the foreign area training down there, foreign area officer training, and microfiche. I haven't put that all together yet, but mm. but we, we spent some time in Garmisch and just loved it down there. So what's the difference between writing about – I'm, I'm really curious about your process of research for these – because that's one thing that's a bit of a challenge for me. It's going back to like the 60s. And wait, I don't even know what the CIA station would, where it was in the 60s. I mean, had, my question is, what's, what's your research process? Like for this, this one in Garmisch, or let's, let's go all the way back to Switchback. Like what is your research process and who did you, who did you actually talk to? Or was it just based on 
books that you read? A lot of it was based on initially, especially the things that the settings that I was familiar with, with my own experience, uh, knowing about Berlin. But, um, you know, uh, Mark, the Internet has so much information on it. And uh, so I, I do a lot of my research, the bulk of it on the Internet. But you've got to be careful about that, too. So if I'll if I. If I'm looking for some particular fact, like, you know, the CIA headquarters before is at Langley. It was actually a series of buildings in Washington, D.C. Um, and I didn't know this, but uh, I, I started talking about CIA headquarters. I said, well, I better I better make sure because I think Langley is a fairly recent construction. So going online and once I've got about four or five different sources telling me the same thing, I feel confident that I can go ahead and um, set that in there. And I've had some people who served in Berlin and uh, who were involved uh, in sort of some of the earlier efforts in Berlin um, come back. And uh, I've never really gotten anybody saying, well, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. Um, although I did get one thing wrong, particularly in the Heraklion Gambit. I had Nick Temple go out and buy a donor kebab. Uh, remember those uh, sort of Turkish sandwiches with oh, yeah. sliced yeah. in? Yeah. Oh, they're the best. Yeah. yeah. Noblach, it, it, Noblach yeah. salsa. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. They weren't available. <laughs> it's 3 a.m. Of course, I want garlic on my, on my yeah. euros. <laughs> anyway, they weren't available in the late 50s. And I had I had Nick oh. buy in one of the late 50s. And a guy called me on that. But generally, my own experience, uh, I've got a few documents, some maps from the era. So I can uh, check street names and, and make sure if I've got them in a high-speed chase or if I've got them going someplace in the wall that I can figure out what was going on there. And uh, again, going to the internet and doing the research and then checking with multiple sources to make sure I've got it right. What would, what would Nick Temple be doing right now if he was a current, if he was a modern day operative? You know, I think there's a lot of technical electronic assistance. And it's one of the reasons I put Nick Temple back when I did, where it was really about his own skills as an individual and more of a, a human aspect to it rather than relying on technology so much. And uh, we just, the other night, my wife and I watched Enemy of the State again, you know, Will Smith and uh, Gene Hackman and about the NSA. And I think Nick Temple would still be one of those guys that was doing it without the gadgets. You know, I think he'd be developing relationships, developing contacts, using uh, sort of time-tested counterintelligence skills about um, probing weaknesses, uh, being very patient. You know, it's intelligence is a long game, and uh, I think he'd be uh, still be doing that on an individual level. I think he would find the satellite stuff. I think he'd find it helpful, but I think he would continue to be the same guy, guy he was before, working the human angle. I think it's fascinating. I mean, you were essentially working the SIGINT, SIGINT angle, I mean, right. at, at Teufelsberg. In a, right. You know, kind of doing this Walter Mitty thing of being a human intelligence guy, kind of drifting off. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it'd be interesting. Exactly. It'd be interesting if, like, if uh, one of, one of those scenes, Nick is you know being held somewhere and he's just kind of dreaming loftily about working for NSA and being an analyst or something <laughs> like that. You know, no, I think I think he's a man of action. And we got to make that into a movie someday. Absolutely. Let's get serious about this, shall we? You have another another book that was a little more of a memoir, which I too. Um, do you want to talk about that a bit? And anyway, I think it's uh, I think a lot of a uh, American. American authors and start out with. I went to a boarding school. In boarding school, we all read The Catcher in the Rye, and we all thought, hey, that's me. Right. Years later, I got a, a videotape from my school asking for money, and the videotape was talking about how great it is and how happy everybody is, how wonderful everything is. And um, that may be true in 
may have been true in 1998, but it's not how I remembered it. So I, I started writing it down the way I remembered it. Uh, very much wise guys, 16, 17 year old. I ended up writing sort of the first half of this book, which was this young man's experience in boarding school. And then he took off, got on a bus and went to Monterey. That's where the first half ended. And the second half I wrote about two years later was him trying to make a living as a 17-year-old in Monterey. And uh, kind of, uh, I put together a couple of experiences, a year and a half that I lived in Monterey together with the, the prep school experience. And, you know, just added it to extensive library of American coming-of-age novels. Right. Oh, yeah. so this wasn't necessarily a memoir. This is fiction. Yeah, it's fiction. You know, it's certainly based on uh, my experience, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's definitely fiction. There are caricatures of people in there that if they thought, oh, that's me, that they would think it's pretty unkind. And it was, you know, it's when you write the fiction, you, you leave out, if you're portraying a character, you don't want to get too thorough and put in all the stuff about, you know, he, he's, he's actually pretty nice to his wife and kids. You want to put in all the, if you're portraying him as, as being a crappy guy, you want him to be a crappy guy, 100%. So, yeah. uh, it was, it's definitely a work of fiction. So what's your process? Do you write every morning? Do you write every day or do you write when you're inspired? Yeah, I write when uh, inspired, but sometimes I write because I, there's a specific thing I have to get done, uh, a scene I have to work through. And um, I'll just sit down and work until either I get through it or I make some progress or, or I, I realize uh, this isn't going to happen right now. You know, like uh, for a while, you know, like a lot of the greats, uh, I used to, you know, have a couple of pops before I start writing and uh, loosen things up a little bit. And uh, that can be a dangerous game, though. Yeah. Anyway, it's hit or miss. You know, I've, I've got to make a living. So I'm a teacher and that takes up a lot of time. Um, so I write more in the summer. I write more um, over vacations. Um but it's, uh, it's strange how it happens. The Heraclean Gambit, when I started writing it, I wrote the first draft in two months, start to finish. And I haven't replicated that. The Flemish Coil, I got stuck on a, on a plot point. And I, I took two years to try to get through it and figure it out. And I kept saying, okay, now I'm going to get through it. And I spent three weeks. I couldn't figure it out. Finally, I figured it out. So I, I don't have a schedule. Sometimes uh, I just need to take a break from it because – I think, uh, you know, you, you sort of get a focus and an energy going, and um, it's not always positive. So uh, sometimes I just have to step away from that. When you're writing a, a novel, are, are, you, are you, I mean, you're obviously starting out with your character of Nick. Obviously, in this genre, the plot is pretty important. Do you uh, sort of throw your character into a place and see what starts to happen? I mean, does your plot come intuitively, or do you have to sort of plan it out? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I've got the big picture in mind, what I want to happen. Uh, but I've also got, uh, I'll start writing a scene and then a character sometimes will appear and events will happen. And uh, just, and sometimes it's just fun. I start laughing like, oh, oh yeah, I'll make them do this now. Or yeah, or, yeah this can, and so that, that's fun and it's really energizing. So um, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think you've got to have a plan. If you just start, at least personally, if I just start writing, it's just going to be a, a string of, of scenes that really don't have any connection together. But um, by the same token, you, I have to be uh, amenable to the idea that things are just going to start happening. My characters are going to start doing stuff that I didn't really count on. Um, right. And that's kind of, that's kind of fun. Have you ever had to reel it back and say, Oh, that was a fun scene, but this just really can't, Nick can't do this right now. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Going back through and cutting things. And, uh, you know, I hate doing that because it's, it's sort of like chopping off a finger of your kid, but, uh, by the same token, uh, if it's not working, it's not working. If it's, if it's just sometimes a little too audacious or I've made Nick, you know, I like Nick to be, to have some flaws 
And right. if I if I make him Superman, then I, it's just like, nah, he's not going to win this fight. He's going to he's going to get the hell knocked out of him. Uh, that'll be much better. That'll move things along in a different way. Provide some more challenges rather than just Nick's always winning. Nick can't always be winning. Yeah, there's also like a kind. There's also this idea of iconic characters. What what goes into making an iconic character? Yeah, I think you know you've, you've got to have a sense of uh, context of history uh, of where this person fits in. And uh, why is it they're there? How, how, what makes them an icon in this particular age and uh, that particular setting? And uh, I think that's, you know, uh, it, like I said, if I had a formula, I, I'd have put it in a pamphlet and sold it for a buck each and I'd be rich by now. But I, I do think that uh, uh, the character has to fit in within um, at least the kind of stuff I write, which is historic fiction, it's got to fit in within the context and it just can't be um, some weird abilities and things that just don't make any sense in that context coming out of nowhere. And in that sense, um, they can't be an icon. So uh, that's more of a negative rather than a a positive idea. But, uh, you know, I struggle with that in terms of language, uh, what language is used during the 50s and 60s. Um, I don't want to overdo it and have a... um, a 21st century sounding conversation that it's got way too many f bombs in it. For example, uh, what did, what did, what did guys that were drinking scotch and smoking cigarettes talk like in 1958, 1965? And um, I think that gets the idea of an iconic character too, because it it, it has to resonate, and it, it can't just sound like oh, you just you know you put him in a 1962 Chevy, but this is all 2017 stuff. Anyway, that's a challenge. Uh, there's there are not a lot of good books out there that say, well, this is real dialogue, you know, from the 1950s. But where did you meet your wife? Thirty three years. Yeah, we we met in Berlin. She was uh, she was a uh, Russian transcriber. She uh, she outranked me, so I had to marry her. Otherwise, uh, we're uh, what's like what's like a fraternization. Otherwise, fraternization. She was an E five. I was an E four. Um, I we were both uh, E fives by the time we left Berlin. Right. And uh, so she was, were both uh, were Russian linguists. She, she's actually a very gifted linguist. She was uh, she studied linguistics in college mm-hmm. and uh, was uh, a very gifted transcriber and um, very a good asset for the United States. So. But what was the plan? What was your plan in case things had escalated? What like what if the Soviets had our thought that was they weren't really going to invade the city? That it was they had bigger fish to fry. We were here. We weren't doing anything. We didn't have a large, dangerous force, so they were just going to kind of go around us and do whatever they had to do. But did you have plans, say, to destroy equipment as hostilities escalated? Were there certain levels that you'd plan for, or was it something you just didn't talk about? Oh, we planned for it. We we had. Um we had drills and uh, that were, and it was kind of interesting. The, the drills were supposed to be classified and secret. Nobody was supposed to know about them. And, and one of the aspects of it, it was about two o'clock in the morning. People would be called into the company area. And then eventually all the teams would head up to Teufelsburg as part of this drill. And on those, on those evenings at two o'clock in the morning, um, there were German taxi cabs all over the place, just waiting to take soldiers <laughs> to the company area. So, so they, they obviously knew about it. <laughs> they knew, but the soldiers knew about the, the oh God, the taxi cabs yeah. knew about the drills. That's hilarious. Yeah, they knew about, so yeah, we had these uh, exactly as you suggest, uh, talking about pretty much just destroying things. But what was the protocol for getting rid of paper, for getting rid of machines, and practicing that 
Teufelsberg, at least on the Army side, was manned by four rotating teams. So it was 24-7 operation, obviously. And we'd have all four teams up there for these, uh, we called them alerts. Right. And uh, these alerts, and uh, the idea was we're practicing for, uh, as we used to say, the balloons going up. And um, we used to joke about, well, if, if the balloon's going to go up, uh, I'm going out to Tempelhof and catch the first flight out of here. But uh, I think our assumption was like yours, that uh, Berlin was already had a wall around it, already had it well guarded. They could just cut off the electricity, cut off the water, um, and there was no real need to expend an invasion force, at least initially, on Berlin. So I think that was our assumption as well. I think it probably would have been, as you mentioned, I think it probably would have been pretty easy pickings. I mean, we had a an infantry regiment there and um, a, a large tank company. But as far as combat of arms, MOSs, there just weren't a lot of guys there. That's something, that's a, something they didn't teach you in the School of Standards. This has been a, a wonderful discussion. I've been talking with John Jonathan Dyer from Napa, California. Thank you very much, Jonathan, uh, for, for being on the, the live drop. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. 